Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. And this morning we're going to read three verses, verse 13 to verse 15. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time to be together as Christians, as believers. We thank you, Lord, for how wonderful you are. We express this in singing today, Lord. We mean it from our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that we can lay before you our cares, that you not only created us and redeemed us, but you redeemed us to be with you forever. Thank you that you care about us this much. Lord, as we turn our minds now to the word of truth, the scriptures that you inspired. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would listen, we would have hearts to hear, and that you'd give us minds to understand, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful book of Galatians that declares our freedom and the righteousness that we have in faith. Help us to understand what we're about to look at now. Lord, be glorified and transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we begin to take our first steps into a new section in the book of Galatians. It's the second to last section in the book. So there's only one more section after this one, and then we're all finished with Galatians. And this second to last section, the section that we're now entering, has been normally called the ethical section or the ethical portion of the letter to the Galatians. This, this section, this ethical section, runs from verse 13 of chapter 5, which we read, to verse 10 of chapter 6, 5.13 to 6.10. It's the second last section. And it's normally considered to be the ethical section because it's evident here as you just briefly scan your eyes over this section from 13 to 6.10, that Paul is discussing and focusing on ethics. He's focusing on the realm of ethics. This is that he's not just talking about here, as we've seen before, how we're justified, but how we are to practically live our lives. How are the justified ones to live their lives? And it's common in Paul and in his letters, and you've probably noticed this if you've read the New Testament, that Paul deals 
with both doctrine and ethics in his letters. He's very well-rounded. Paul's a well-rounded person. He doesn't just talk about doctrine. He doesn't just meditate on the glorious teachings of the gospel, but he also talks about how does this affect us practically? How do we live in the light of this as well? And we too should be well-rounded people as well. Amen? We shouldn't just be always talking about doctrine. We should also be people who are interested in how to live our lives as Christians as well. However, there's a great misconception here. There's a great misconception among people when they read the book of Galatians. It's often thought that here, like in other letters of Paul, that there's a rather sharp distinction between the doctrinal section of the letter and the ethical section of the letter. Paul has, it's thought, finished his doctrinal section. He's finished the argumentative portion of the book of Galatians. Galatians was written to defend righteousness through faith. Galatians was written to the Christian churches to argue for and defend how we are justified before God, through faith or through the works of the law. And it's thought that Paul's finished with this argumentative portion. He's done with that. He defended his apostleship in chapter 1 and 2. He defended the gospel using history and logic and scripture in chapters 3 and 4. He's given the final warning and final charge in chapter 5, 1 through 12. And verse 12 of chapter 5, it's thought, constitutes the close of the argumentative section of the book of Galatians. So do you see what I'm saying is that there's many people who think after chapter 12, Paul's finished with the argumentative portion. He's done defending it. It's all over. And now that he's done defending the gospel of righteousness through faith, after he's finished the case, he then shifts gears and proceeds upon what follows, the ethical portion. Basically, okay, now we've proven justification through faith. That's all finished. So how should we live in the light of that? Now, while it is true that Paul only now begins to focus on ethics, it's a serious mistake, brothers and sisters, to see this section as a kind of appendix or afterward of the letter. It's a serious mistake to, to think that Paul has finished his argument, and now that he's finished it, he's going to move on to something new and something else. He's not arguing anymore, just an afterward. Now, in the light of this truth, how should we live? That's a serious mistake. First of all, the entire letter of Galatians, from the opening Paul to the closing Amen, is an argument. The whole thing is an argument. And we misunderstand the book of Galatians if we fail to see that the whole book of Galatians, he's arguing for righteousness through faith. Out of the gate, immediately, and to the breaking of the tape, he's arguing for justification through faith. If you remember when we were looking at chapter 1, I emphasized that point that right from the beginning, he's not wasting any time, remember? And right from the beginning, right from his opening words, he's already defending the gospel going on the offensive as well to challenge the false views that are spreading at Galatia. And if you look past chapter 5 and into chapter 6, if you look all the way to the end, Paul is defending his apostleship right into the end. He's defending the gospel right until the very end. So the whole book is an argument, including this ethical section. And secondly, you'll notice that this entire ethical section from 5.13 to 6.10 is actually just an unpacking of something that he said 
in chapter 5, verse 6. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. And here, in the, in the body of his argument, and this is an important part of his argument, he says that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So he, he argues this, and this ethical portion is an unpacking of what he says there in verse 6. Faith working through love. In the same phrase, through love, we found in verse 13. Through love, serve one another. So it's important to understand he's simply unpacking that. And thirdly, we need to see that this ethical portion, this ethical argument, is an essential argument for defending righteousness by grace through faith alone. The ethical argument is essential to defending the gospel because one of the main arguments that is used against the gospel, and I'm sure you've probably heard it before, what is it? It's where they say, oh, then you don't have to do it. Right, exactly, Carvel. It's uh, this gospel of righteousness through faith that you say is from God. If that's true, that's going to lead to moral chaos anarchy and bedlam. If I don't have to keep the commandments of God to be saved, if I don't have to keep the law in order to be saved, then what's to stop me from just pouring forth my sinful nature and doing all sorts of evil, vile things? Because I'm just going to go to heaven if I believe. You've heard this before, right? It's one of the main arguments leveled against the gospel of righteousness through faith. That the gospel of righteousness through faith leads to sinning, and therefore it's false. Paul must deal with this objection if he is going to defend the gospel of Christ. He has to deal with it. And we can be sure that the agitators were using it against Paul. We can be sure that those troublers were saying, you know, this is crazy what Paul's saying. It's just going to lead to moral disaster. So it's indispensable as an argument. I want to emphasize that this morning. The commentator Frank Matera says this about this portion. Galatians 5 and 6 forms the culmination of Paul's argument to the Galatians. Not an appendix, not an afterword, but the culmination. Although these chapters contain a great deal of moral exhortation, they should not be viewed exclusively as exhortation, meaning this isn't an argument, this is just Paul telling us what to do in the light of his argument. He says they are the final, they are the climax of Paul's deliberative argument aimed at persuading the Galatians not to be circumcised. I hope you see this, that this ethical section is an argument persuading the Galatians not to be circumcised. And what we find here, as usual, brothers and sisters, is that Paul not only goes on the defensive here in this ethical argument, but he goes on the offensive and he argues that the case as it stands is exactly the opposite as what the agitators are saying. The agitators are saying righteousness through faith will lead to moral disaster. And Paul doesn't just defend himself saying, no, it won't. He actually goes on the offensive and says, no, you agitators, you've got it wrong. It's this righteousness, it's this false notion. It is righteousness through law 
that leads to moral disaster. And it's righteousness through faith that leads to transformation. As the commentator Walter Russell says, Paul proves the superiority of his gospel within the ethical realm. It's awesome. Therefore, it's indispensable that we see that this is an argument in order to understand the entire flow of thought in the letter. But I want to emphasize this. It's, it's indispensable to see that this is an argument in order to understand this ethical section. You will not understand what Paul is saying in this second to last section if you think it's an afterword, if you don't see it as an argument. So you need to see that he is arguing here. If you fail to see it as an argument, you will fail to understand it. This morning, we'll just focus primarily on verse 13. And we'll talk about three, the three key words in this verse. We'll talk about, first, the freedom that he mentions. Secondly, the flesh. And thirdly, the service that he mentions. And I'd like to just give us a heads up as we proceed into this new section, not just for this sermon, but the heads up for this new section that we'll be looking at in a few weeks, over the course of a few weeks, that this is not an easy section of Scripture. This is a very difficult section of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Have you ever, as you're reading Galatians chapter 5, have you ever thought, wow, what Paul has to say here in 5.13 to 6.10 is kind of hard to follow. And it's true it's hard to follow. No matter how you interpret this passage, it's difficult. It's going to require us to be thinking. It's going to require us to meditate upon it after Sunday mornings. And we're going to be needing to really use our minds as we go through this passage. And it will be difficult. There's a lot here, and we'll be spending a few weeks on it. So just beware and be prepared for the difficulty of this section. But it's a very important section. It's not just simply Paul giving us ethical directions, but he's laying an ethical foundation for our Christian lives, from which all the other directions can come. He's laying an ethical foundation from which everything else can be built upon. So first, look at verse 13, the freedom that he talks about. You were called to freedom, brethren. Now, we talked about this freedom two weeks ago when we were looking at verse 1. Do you remember that? Do you remember what the freedom is? It's the same freedom in verse 13 that he's talking about in, that he talked about in verse 1. In verse 1, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. In verse 13, he says the same thing again. You were called to freedom. Now, what is that freedom? If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about how that freedom that Christ brings us is not the freedom that William Wallace was crying out for in the movie Braveheart. It's not political freedom. And the freedom that Christ brings us is not the freedom that the French people are singing about in Les Miserables. They're not, it's not the social or economic freedom that they want. That's not the freedom that Christ brings us. And the third thing... I mentioned two weeks ago that the freedom is not, is it's not this hippie kind of freedom. That people say, you need to take this drug and it will free your mind. Then you'll really be free. You're not free until you think outside of the, the box with these drugs. 
It's not freedom from logic. It's not freedom from God's created order. As we talked about last, uh, two weeks ago, the freedom that Christ brings us and has brought you, if you're a Christian, is freedom from the law. What is the law? The law is the expression of God's will for your life. What God wants you to do. What God requires you to do. It is his will and it is also the revelation of his judgment against you if you do not do his will. Would you say that's a good summary of the law? It's a revelation of God's will for you, and it's a revelation of his wrath and his judgment against you if you do not do his will. If you are not free from the law, then you are under obligation. You must do the will that God has for your life. And if you don't, then you're under a curse, Scripture tells us. And what is that will? You might say, okay, tell me it so I won't be under the wrath of God. Well, the law requires you to love God, your creator, with the totality of your being and to love the person sitting next to you just as much as you love and care for yourself. And if you do that, you'll have fulfilled all of the law because all the other commandments, all the other things that God says in the law, 613 commandments, they're all hanging upon those two. In fact, Paul says if there's any other commandment you want to throw into the mix, they all can be summarized by these commandments of love. So if you love God and you love your neighbor, you'll keep all the commandments. You will not sin. This is God's will as it is expressed in the law. Perfect love for God and your neighbor. And if you don't do it, you're under a curse, and you have to do it, and you have to do it all. And so if you are under the law, Paul argued in chapter 3 that you are therefore under a curse. It's not like, oh, you're under the law? Well, how are you doing? Are you under the curse or not? Paul knows if you're under the law, you are under the curse because nobody does it. Can anyone here raise their hand and say that they've obeyed the law and they have fulfilled the will of God for their moral behavior? No one. If you're under the curse and you realize it, then the Bible also says you're in bondage to fear. That's a horrible feeling. I don't know how many of you have been there, but it is an absolutely dreadful and awful thing to be in bondage to the fear of judgment and the fear of God's wrath. And that comes from having your eyes open to see that God is serious about his law. So Paul, when he says that we are free and that Christ brought freedom, he means that we are free from the law. That is, we are no longer under the requirement and the obligation to fulfill that will of God for us, which is perfect love, which sounds almost blasphemous, and it would be apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This really strange thing that happened in history, that Jesus came into the world and took our place and died our death so that we could be counted as having died in him and we are freed through his death from the obligations of the law. Yes, that's very weird. It's one of the reasons why the world has a hard time believing it. It's so strange that we would be delivered from this. But Paul says, not only are we delivered from the law, but what comes with that deliverance from the law is you're freed from all sin. That is, since you're not under obligation to keep the law, therefore God does not see you as a sinner. Since you're not breaking his law because you're not obligated to do it, you're therefore released from the curse. 
redeemed from all judgment and punishment and wrath. You need not fear that anymore if you're a Christian. Therefore, you're free from fear. Christians, you do not have to live your life in the dread of judgment. And Paul says, he sums it all up, you have been released from this world because this present age is the age that is under the law, under sin, under curse, and if they really knew it, would be under fear as well. G. G. Campbell Morgan says this about the freedom that we have as Christians. The freedom of the church is not political, it is spiritual, or it is nothing. It is spiritual, or it is nothing. What he means by that is, if you had political freedom, if you had social economic freedom, if you had hippie freedom, but you didn't have freedom from the law of God, you'd have no freedom at all. Amen? You could have all that so-called freedom, which does have value, I I agree, in this world. Maybe not the hippie one. (laughs) But you would not be free. And you'd realize on Judgment Day that you are not free. And you'd wish on Judgment Day that you had listened and had been free. So Paul says here, you are called to freedom. He repeats himself again because this is so important and such a serious matter this freedom the freedom that we have as christians when you see it in this light of the law as you should it becomes a very serious thing isn't it that you are free and that you're called to that freedom freedom is what christ died for freedom is what christ calls us to freedom is what christ wants for us he wants us to be free and enjoy the freedom that we have Amen. So enjoy it, brothers and sisters. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and trusting in him, you are free. Enjoy the freedom that you have. And yet for all this emphasis on freedom in this, in this letter, it might surprise us to see what Paul says next. And look at verse 13. You were called to freedom, brethren, only, only, kind of a foreboding and strange thing for Paul to say after telling us about the freedom. Yeah, you're totally free, only uh, (laughs) you're totally free except, um, wait, what's that? Are you qualifying this freedom? That sounds like a qualification. That sounds like the taking away of freedom somehow. You're totally free except in this one little matter and you're taking back freedom now. That kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden. You're totally free to eat from every tree you want in this garden, only uh, just not this one. (laughs) Oh no, I know how this is going to turn out. Because if Paul's qualifying this freedom, and he says, you're free except for this one thing, you're not free. I know where that road is going to (laughs) lead, right? We've seen that at the Garden of Eden. It seems like with human beings, We are so sinful that it doesn't matter how much or how extensive our freedom can be. If we have one qualification, if we have one thing that's forbidden to us, then we will, we know, will inevitably collapse. If Paul was qualifying this freedom, brothers and sisters, we would be in big trouble. It would be just a matter of time until we would be doomed. That would be the end of Christianity and the end of our hope. If he said, you're free, except for this, you're not free. 
Actually, Paul is not taking away our freedom in verse 13, and he is not qualifying it either in the sense of saying, you're free except for this, you're not free. What Paul is doing here is he's exhorting us about our, the usage of the freedom that we have in Christ. What we should do and what we shouldn't do with the freedom that we have. What we should do and what we shouldn't do with this freedom that we have. We do have this freedom. But he's saying, hey, let me tell you about this freedom, what you shouldn't do with it, and what you should do with it. Now, what, it, what is it that he says we should and should not do with it? In the New American Standard, the text reads, do not turn your freedom into an occasion or opportunity, that's a military term, for giving the the enemy an opportunity, you know. Don't give the enemy an opportunity. If you do that or if you do this, then what's going to happen is the, the enemy's going to see an opportunity and exploit it. So do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for, he says here, the flesh. Some translations will say do not use your freedom for an opportunity to the flesh. Here are two terrible translations of Galatians 13. 5.13. This is from the Message Bible. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want and to do whatever you want to do and so destroy your freedom. The Message Bible says, you're totally free, my friends, but don't do whatever you want to do lest you destroy this freedom. Oh my, that's scary. You're totally free, but if you don't watch it, you're going to destroy the freedom. Or the, the Living Bible says, You've been called to freedom, but not freedom to do wrong. You're not free to do wrong. Well, you're in big trouble then, aren't you? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we cannot lose the freedom by sinning. This is not Paul's point here. He's not saying, hey, you're free, but you can lose this freedom if you sin. Or you are not free to sin. If you sin, you're, you're not free. Something's going to come down on you hard. How we understand this is obviously important. If we're not careful, we'll be putting ourselves back under the law, right? If we're not careful, we'll be saying, you're totally free, but not, and all of a sudden we'll start qualifying it, and we're back under the law. You better not sin or else. That's what the law, that's what the law is all about, right? You better not do this or else, because you're not free to do that. Something is going to come at you. Punishment. What then does Paul mean? What is he saying? So we've looked at the freedom Secondly, the flesh. Now, what is typically taught here in almost every commentary that I read, not every commentary, but 99% of them, what is typically taught, and I will even say taken for granted, is that the flesh here that Paul is speaking about, when he says, you're free, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, what is this flesh? It's taken for granted and typically taught by so many that the flesh is your sinful nature. The flesh is your sinful nature. And it's typically thought that what Paul is doing here is he's warning the Galatians about two ditches. The book of Galatians warns the Galatians about two ditches. On the one hand, you've got legalism. And Paul writes the letter to the Galatians and says, you better watch out about legalism, guys. We are righteous through faith, not by works. We are not made right by what we do. That's legalism. 
Legalism is seeking to be blessed or obtain standing with God through your works or through the law. That's what legalism is. Just on a side note, many people think legalism is adding to the law human rules. That's not what legalism is. Legalism is not adding to the law human rules. Legalism is when you're seeking to be justified or obtain blessings by law, when the law is your method of salvation or obtaining blessings. And so they, they think that Paul's warning about two ditches. On the one side, you've got legalism. No, we're not justified by works. We're not justified by law, but through faith. But on the other side, watch out. Watch out that for what is often called license. Watch out that now that you have no justification, now that you realize you're not justified by the law, watch out that you don't sin. I'm not under law, I don't have to keep commandments, great, I'll just sin it up. And it's thought that what Paul is essentially saying here is simply, guys, you're free from the law, but don't sin with that freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your sinful desires and sinful nature. Don't do that. Now, when you see this passage this way, it really marks a great shift in the letter. He's been arguing for justification through faith, and then all of a sudden he shifts against, now he's not talking about legalism, but he's talking about license. Now, while it is true, and we shouldn't say any different, it is true, dear friends, who have been justified through faith, It is true that we shouldn't use our freedom to sin. Amen? That's not a false thing to say. Hey, I'm free. I'm not saved by my works. But let's not just go sin because of that, right? In fact, 1 Peter 2, verse 16, I think Peter actually makes that exact point. He says, hey, we're free, but let's not use our freedom to do wicked things. My argument here this morning is while that is true that we shouldn't use our freedom to sin, and I'm not going to argue with that, that that is not Paul's point here. That's not exactly Paul's point here. And then if you really look at the passage as you go on further in this ethical portion, it is evident that Paul is talking about something more foundational and deeper than that. Paul is talking about something more deep and foundational than just, guys, don't sin. He's getting underneath it. Why do we sin? What is the reason why we sin? As Paul so often does, he looks to the root and not just to the fruit. Paul's point here in Galatians 5.13 is not simply to say don't sin, but it is this. The agitators are telling you that it is the way of law that will keep you from sinning and moral disaster. The agitators are telling you guys, hey, this gospel of justification through faith without works, this is going to lead to moral chaos. The only way to really get people to not sin is by the law. This is not just what the agitators say, this is what people in the 21st century say also who are legalists. They think the law is the way to fix society and to fix people. And Paul is saying here, 
the agitators are telling you it's the way of law that will keep you from sinning, but it's actually the contrary. The way of law is the cause of sin. And the way of grace, the way of justification through faith, is actually the cause of love and holiness. He turns it upside down. He says there's, different, there's two different environments you can live in. The environment of flesh, the environment of law, or the environment of the Spirit, and the environment of grace. It's like two gardens. What you put into it will cause different things to grow, or how it will show, it will determine how things grow. And Paul does this all the time in his letters. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Paul repeatedly warns us about this very thing that the law is the cause of sin. What a shock. What a shock. Romans chapter 5. We can be sure that Paul did not believe this before he became a Christian. Romans 5 verse 20. These should be passages that you're familiar with, but I just want to show how frequently Paul talks about this phenomenon of the law causing sin. He says in chapter 5, verse 20 of Romans, the law came in so that the transgression would be stopped. No. <laughs> but so that the, the transgression would increase. Wow, God, that's weird logic. That's weird. That's a weird operation. Don't you want the transgressions to stop? Why would you put the law in, in it for it to increase? But that's what God did. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says this, that sin will not be master over you because you are under law and not grace. That's not what he says. He says the opposite. Sin will not master you, sin will not control you for the very reason that you're not under the law, but you're under grace. For it was you being under the law that caused sin to master you. And it is only grace that will free you. That's his point in chapter 7. Look at Romans 7, verse 4. Romans 7, 4 to 6. He says here, My brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. This is that freedom that we were talking about. So that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, so that, or in order that, we might bear fruit unto bear fruit unto God, or bear fruit for God. So you've died to the law, so you could be joined to Christ, so you could bear fruit unto God. And in verse 5, he makes this absolutely radical statement, for while we were in the flesh, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bring forth fruit for death. When we were in the flesh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Where did the sinful passions come from? Where did they get aroused? What did they get aroused by? He makes this radical statement by the law. And that's what produced death in us. But now in verse 6, we've been released from the law. Notice the emphasis on our freedom from law. Having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the law or the oldness of the letter. So Paul is very much talking about our, our lives here. 
how we live our lives, our behavior. And he's saying that when you're under law, that's a garden that produces bad fruit. When you're in the environment of legalism, when you have to keep the law, that stirs up your sinful passions. It's being freed from that environment. It's having a whole new garden that makes the difference. And you're probably familiar with Romans 7, verse 7 to 13, this, and on this uh, very famous passage where he says, I'm not doing what I want to do when I'm under the law. And look at verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? See, he asked this question in the light of what he just was saying because he was just saying that the law causes sin to be aroused. And so now we say, what, are you saying the law is bad? No, I'm not saying the law is bad. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now notice what he says in verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity, there's that same word, through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, what? Sin runs rampant. That's not what he says. He doesn't say apart from the law, sin runs rampant. If you get rid of the law, everyone's going to go crazy. He says apart from the law, sin has, is dead. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity, that word again, through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. This is really strange stuff for the legalist to hear. One of the most radical truths in the Bible, and the Bible is full of radical truths, is that we are not justified through the law, but also that it is the law that actually stirs up and causes us to sin. The world thinks that the law will help, and while Paul used to, what he is saying here is that it is the way of law that causes us to sin. Not because the law is bad, but because it stirs up the sin that is within us, and our own efforts and our own strength is not able to compete with the sin that is within us that is stirred up by the law. I think the law can stop some sins. You know, when you, when you enter a legalistic environment or when you bound yourself to a bunch of laws, sure, you might stop some sins. Maybe you'll stop getting drunk. Maybe you'll stop fornicating. Maybe you'll stop swearing because you're now convinced that you're not supposed, you, you can't do that anymore. You've joined the club. You've taken the oath. You're not allowed to do those things. And so I think that the law gives a veneer of change and transformation, right? That when people join legalistic religions, maybe they do change. Maybe they stop taking drugs. Maybe they stop sleeping around. Everyone says, wow, transformation. The law really made these people moral. And yet Jesus would say, when he's looking at these very outwardly good-looking moral Pharisees, he said, you guys are full of wickedness and dead man's bones on the inside. Because while you might have gotten rid of your fornication or your drunkenness, now you're filled with pride. Now you're filled with boasting. Now you're filled with arrogance. Now you're filled with judgmentalism towards other people. Now you're filled with self-righteousness. And those things are abominable to God. You become worse. 
not better. And turn back to Galatians 5. The book of Galatians, brothers and sisters, challenges us to change our view of the flesh. The book of Galatians challenges us to change our view of the flesh. Now here in chapter 5 is not the first time that Paul has placed the flesh and the spirit against each other in antithesis. Amen? In this ethical portion, as we read on, and we didn't read it this morning, Paul sets the flesh against the spirit, doesn't he? So he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Walk in the spirit. You will not fulfill the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. He sets the flesh and spirit against each other, but this is not the first time he's done that in the letter. Throughout Galatians, the flesh and the spirit have been set against each other, and they both, as we can see from the entire letter, represent two different ways or modes of seeking God's blessings and his salvation. Chapter 3, verse 2 and 3 is the first. In chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, he sets the flesh and the spirit. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How were you filled with joy? How were you filled with peace? How were you filled with hope? Was it through you keeping the law or was it through, through you hearing the good news of the gospel? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So here he sets the spirit and the flesh in antithesis to one another, at odds with one another, and the flesh here clearly represents going to the law in order to obtain blessings and peace. The spirit is listening to the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 21 to 31, Paul sets the flesh and the spirit against each other again. And here, if you remember, he's talking about Isaac and Ishmael. And he says, Isaac is the child born of the Spirit. He's the child of the Spirit. Look at verse 29. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is today. He sets flesh and spirit against each other in antithesis again. And what we are seeing here in Paul's usage of flesh and spirit is that the flesh represents the law. The flesh represents our human strength, our human efforts, our going back to the law to accomplish salvation for ourselves, our, our trusting in what we can do instead of what God can do. That's the problem in chapter 3. That's the problem in chapter 4 with Isaac and Ishmael. And therefore, there's no radical shift, brothers and sisters, when we get to chapter 5, verse 13, as so many misconceive. In fact, you read the commentators and they'll say, you know, earlier in the book, when Paul talked about the flesh, he was talking about human effort. He was talking about going to the law. He was talking about the way of earning salvation or earning God's blessings by what you can do. But now he's talking about the sinful nature. He wasn't talking about the sinful nature before, but now he is. And what he's saying here in 5.13 is, you're free, but don't use your freedom to go to the sinful nature and do sinful nature 
things. But this is a misconception. As we, as we were talking about earlier, the ethical section here is the culmination of a great argument that he's been giving throughout the entire book of Galatians. This is not something radically new here. This is him just continuing the argument into the ethical realm about the flesh and the spirit. Walter Russell has this excellent note. If the Judaizers or the agitators are characterized as those who are born according to the norm or standard of the flesh in chapter 4, it logically follows that they will also live or walk according to that norm or standard. This is Paul's point in Galatians 5 and 6. He now rips back the curtain to reveal how the community of the flesh will really function in the absence of the Spirit. Such a community stands in stark contrast to the functioning of the community of the Spirit. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, guys, there's two different ways to be right with God, through the flesh or through the Spirit. What do I mean by through the flesh? Through what you can do. And that would correlate to you seeking justification by the law. But the other way to be right with God is, is through the Spirit. That is what God does and not what we do. That is God's arm and his activity and his work. And what does that relate to? The gospel, the giving of Jesus Christ to die for our sins and our simple trusting in him. That is God's work. And both of these different ways of relating to God will produce different communities and different fruit. Both of these different ways of relating to God will produce different communities and different fruit. So the flesh is not, I argue, our sinful nature, although I do believe we have a sinful nature, but it is not in the Bible called the flesh. You know, many people think the flesh is our sinful nature, and they say the flesh is in us. The Bible does not say that or talk like that. The Bible doesn't say the flesh is in us. It says either that we are in the flesh or that we are not in the flesh. It's a sphere in which we can be, but it's not something in us. And many people who think that the flesh is the sinful nature, they think of the flesh as overpowering us. I want to do good, but the flesh stops me from doing good. It overpowers me. And they think that what they need is, they need God to break the power of the flesh. Have you ever heard those kind of th statements? I need God to break the power of my flesh by his spirit. But this is not a biblical way of speaking either. According to the Bible, we do not sin because the flesh is too strong, according to the Bible. We sin because the flesh is too weak. That is what the Bible teaches. So when you sin, don't think, oh, my flesh is too strong. You should say, oh, my flesh is too weak, meaning my own efforts, my own strength, my own endeavor to do this is not strong. To overcome the sin that is within us, stirred up by the law. And the battle, brothers and sisters, is not the battle, because one might ask, okay, if the flesh isn't the sinful nature, 
And if the flesh is weak, why then is the flesh such a bad thing? And why does Paul make such a big deal about it here in this ethical section? So if the flesh isn't the sinful nature and it's just simply my own human weakness, why does he set it against the spirit? Why is it such a big deal? And the answer is because the battle, according to Paul, is not between sinning and not sinning. The battle is between what are you trusting in? That's what the battle's all about. He says, he's not saying, look, the whole battle here is whether you're going to sin or not. The whole battle is what are you going to trust in? And in what sphere will you live? In the sphere of your own human works and efforts or in the sphere of the grace of God and the power and the work of God? That's what the battle is all about. What are you trusting in? Paul personifies the flesh in this chapter and he reminds us that the flesh would like to boast and brag. The flesh would like to take credit. The flesh would like you to trust in it so that you could boast about how great you are. The flesh would like you to put your confidence in it. The flesh would like you to go under the law so that you can show how great you are. But that would be our doom. Look at verse 26 of chapter 5. And I think this is a fascinating verse that often gets overlooked. But I think verse 26 really summarizes what he's saying in this chapter. So he says, you're totally free, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity to the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. He's talking this way, which can be misunderstood, but I don't think verse 26 can be misunderstood. And here's what he says, let us not become boastful. Let us not become boastful. Let us not become proud. Let us not become conceited. Let us not become arrogant and self-righteous and think that we have any strength or power. Because that's what happens when we give opportunity to our flesh to brag and to boast. Walking in the flesh, and how many of you can agree? Living in the sphere of flesh, thinking fleshly thoughts, living under legalism and law, produces destroyed relationships. Look at verse 26 again. Let us not become boastful. What does that lead to? Challenging one another and envying one another. Competition. Competition. I can, I can tell you from personal experience, that's exactly what happens. Before I understood the gospel, and this is a temptation for us as Christians as well, but I can remember well, before I became a Christian and understood righteousness through faith, I used to travel around with some other guys we used to preach a lot. We used to mingle with other like-minded preachers and things who didn't understand the gospel either. And I can tell you from personal experience that the environment that we were in was one of competition. <laughs> it really was. And we all believed that you had to keep the commandments to be saved. You know, we all said you should be humble. We all said you shouldn't be proud. We were all proud. We're all arrogant. We're all trying to make a name for ourselves and, and bragging about how great we are. Although we were sincere and we thought we were doing good, but that's what the environment of legalism will bring. Have you ever seen that? Have you seen how legalistic communities destroy relationships? It can look good on the outside, but underneath it produces competition, rivalry, envying, bitterness, gossip, 
and all sorts of awful things. When you have a legalistic community and everything looks good, you can almost just put, you can just bet on it that something bad's going to eventually explode there, right? Walter Russell says, the end of this kind of Judaizing emphasis is mutually destructive relationships. And ironically, the end of the true gospel and its manifestation is the fulfillment of the basic purpose of the whole Mosaic law, loving edification of one's neighbor. So he says, ironically, it's this way of righteousness through faith without the law that will, according to verse 13 and 14, actually result in us doing what the law wants us to do, which is love. And that brings us to our conclusion this morning, which is the last key word here, and that's the service. Through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. And in this verse, Paul not only affirms that we are free as Christians, he doesn't only say... uh, In our freedom, this is what we should avoid. We should avoid the flesh. That's the real battle. And then he gives us the alternative of what we should do. In this freedom, this is what you shouldn't do. Watch out for the flesh. Here's what you should do. Do this with your freedom. Through love, serve one another. There are so many ironic paradoxes in verse 13. But one of the great paradoxes is that Paul is saying here, in freedom, choose freely to be a slave. Because the word there, serve, is slave. So he says, you're totally free. But watch out for the flesh, because that's going to not lead you to love your neighbor and serve your neighbor. That's going to lead you to bite and devour your neighbor. Watch out for the flesh. And through love, Make yourself a slave to one another. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.16, make yourself a slave to God in your freedom. So both, both apostles see the Christian life as one lived in freedom and ironically one lived in in free servitude to others and to God. And it's through love, he says, that we're to do this, not through law. Not because you have to. This would be the law. Serve one another because you have to or or else. This is through love. Serve one another. And how do we get that love? How do we get the love to freely choose to serve God and others? And brothers and sisters, that's not going to come from the law telling people that they have to love God and their neighbor or else does not produce the desired results. In fact, it produces the opposite. But telling people about God's love and telling people about the freedom of grace and the gospel does produce the desired results. Is that true in your own experience? Can you say in your own experience that when the truth of the gospel, when the truth of God's amazing love for you and what he's done for you in Christ and and how he's freed you from the law and you're no longer under judgment and he did it because he loves you, can you say personally that when that has entered through your thick skull, you have felt a desire to 
love God and to serve God and to serve other people totally by your own free choice and not because you have to. It's not like, oh no, I better do this. It's just, wow, this just changes my outlook and makes me want to serve others and to serve God. Can you say that in your own experience? We are thick-headed, I know. It doesn't happen all the time. But the point here is this is the way for it to happen, to get the gospel through our thick skulls and not just shove the law down each other's throats. And Paul says in chapter 5, verse 6, that this is what meaningful religion is all about. The only thing that means anything is that we have faith and we are justified and righteous before God through faith and that based upon the truth that we believe, we serve and work through love and not through law. So this is an essential argument, as I said, in the letter to the Galatians. This is absolutely essential to defending righteousness through faith. And we need to take it to heart in the 21st century as well that as we preach the gospel to those outside, that we're not only preaching the doctrine, but we're also showing the superiority of the gospel in the ethical realm as well, because that's a common attack we'll hear today. In this section, Paul is not so much giving ethical directions as he is laying down the ethical foundation. This is the foundation of our Christian life. This is what the battle is all about when you get up in the morning. Flesh versus spirit, not primarily sin versus not sin. And from this foundation, we serve. So my prayer is that we would, as we go through this section in the few weeks to come, which is a very difficult section, that we would understand and enjoy the freedom that we have. We would know what we have. I pray for every single Christian here. We would grasp in a greater way what we have in Christ, what our freedom is, why we have it, the amazing grace of God and love of God, and in the wonder of that freedom, that we would choose to serve God and others through love. I pray that we would all grow in that service. I know we all need to. May we, through faith in the gospel and by living out through love, testify of God's good news to those around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the freedom that we have in Christ. We are so thick-skulled. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us who are Christians would truly grow in our knowledge of these precious and radical matters. And I pray that here, Lord, even this year, 2015, would be a year where our minds begin to renew and we begin to see life through a different perspective, Lord. And I pray that our community would not be a community of envy and biting and devouring and competition. I pray, Lord, that we would truly have a community here where we serve each other in love. Please start with me, Lord. Thank you for the wonderful gospel 
that gives us hope and that shows us who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.